My name is Mark McGuinness, and this is the 21st Century Creative, the podcast that helps you thrive as a creative professional amid the demands, the distractions, and the opportunities of the 21st century. Welcome to the final episode of the creative disruption season of the 21st Century Creative. It's been my most ambitious season yet, with creatives spread across five continents and probably the closest I'll ever get to releasing a concept album. Because all the interviews have had a common thread, how creators around the world were disrupted by the COVID-19 pandemic. And each interview tells the story of how one creative or a team of creatives rose to the challenge by doing something new and different that opened up new possibilities for their future. I focused on the arts and the creative industries that experienced some of the biggest disruption, such as theatre, music, art film and TV production. I also had stories from creative fields that didn't necessarily get so much media coverage, but which were also severely affected, such as teaching retreats, experiential marketing, street photography and tattoo art. And one thread that runs through every single interview this season is the extraordinary creativity courage and resilience shown by my guests in creating new types of artwork, new products, new services, and even, in some cases, entirely new companies in the face of a global crisis. And finally, today, I'm going to close the loop by sharing the story of my own journey through the pandemic. So, there's a bit of a different format for this episode. So in the first part, I'm going to tell the story of my pandemic and how it affected our company, the 21st Century Creative. I'll talk about the challenges I faced, the discoveries I made, and the lessons I've learned. Then in the second part, Joanna Penn, who you have previously met as a guest on the 21st Century Creative, has kindly interviewed me, about the inspiration behind my poetry podcast, A Mouthful of Air, and how I conceived, funded, launched and produced it against the backdrop of the pandemic. So, before we plunge into that, I'd like to pause and thank everyone who has helped me to make the creative disruption season a season I'm proud of. Firstly, huge thanks and massive respect to my guests for being so generous with their time and their hard-won wisdom. It's been a privilege to spend time with them and to share their stories with you. Next, thank you to Mammy, my business partner, co-producer and wife, for lots of helpful conversations about the shape of the season and also specific episodes. 
and also for being a patient and understanding presence on the days when it felt like I'd bitten off more than I could chew and the season was never going to turn out the way I wanted it to. Next, a big thank you, as always, to Javier Whaler and Alejandro Lovera at Breaking Waves for the music and the sound production of the show. You know, when you make a show for creative and media professionals, you know it better sound good. And I always know I'm in great hands with Javier and Alejandro. Thank you also to another regular team member, Alexandra Amor, for her sharp editorial eye on the interview transcripts for each episode, which make them as accessible as possible. And thank you to Nate Hofelder, an unsung hero of the 21st century creative. Behind the scenes, Nate takes care of all my websites and the technical support needs with the podcast. So he takes any tech-related stress off my hands, which allows me to concentrate on the things I'm actually good at. And as always, a heartfelt thank you to you for being there and for listening. We may never get to meet face-to-face, but you've been with me in my mind throughout the whole process of making the season. I'm honoured that you've taken the time to listen, and I do hope the season has brought you some ideas and inspiration, and hopefully a smile or two along the way. Last but not least, a special thank you to the 21st Century Creative members who took part in the group on Patreon. We shared our goals, we encouraged each other, we egged each other on, you sent me your questions, and I answered them to the best of my ability. And you helped to fund the show with your contributions, some of them way above the minimum $1 an episode. You know, it means an awful lot to know that you value the show enough to support it financially and to help to make it self-sustaining. I'll be back in a few months' time for season seven, and I want to make sure that the gap between seasons isn't nearly as long this time round. If you did find this season helpful, then a lovely way to pay it forward would be to share it with a friend or on social media. And if you are listening to this on your phone on Apple Podcasts, One really quick thing you could do right this moment is to scroll down to the rating section and just swipe right to leave a rating. No need to write a review. Just scroll down and swipe right, and that will be very much appreciated by me, and it will help other creatives like you to discover the show. As always, my coaching practice will remain open, so if you are an experienced creative and you want to make big changes to your creative work, your career, or your business, then go to 21stcenturycreative.fm slash coaching questions and answer the questions on that page. I'll get back to you once I've read through your answers and had a think about them. Okay, we are not quite finished with season six. It's time for the final chapter in our epic tale of creative disruption. The story of my journey through the pandemic.
You're shortly going to hear Joanna Penn interview me about the big new project I created in 2021. But first, I'm going to share the story of my pandemic and what I've learned from it in the hope that it might be a helpful perspective for you. Because I've just spent nine episodes talking to other people about their journey through the last couple of years, and it feels like the picture wouldn't be complete without sharing my own story. So one question you've heard me ask all my guests this season is, when did you first realise that this new virus was going to have a big impact on your life? And in my case, I remember at the start of 2020, we had a few weeks in the twilight zone when other European countries were locking down and we were wondering why the UK wasn't. I remember ringing my parents and persuading them not to go out, even though the government said it would be okay. And then, near the end of March, the Prime Minister finally came on television and told us that we all had to stay at home, which was a really surreal moment, even though we were kind of expecting it. And... My wife, Mammy, and I had to explain this to our children and also get our heads around the fact that we were all going to be in the house together for several weeks. And to give you a bit of context, at the beginning of 2020, I'd been taking stock of things and I realised that with my work-from-home online micro-entrepreneur lifestyle, I'd created a bit of an introvert's paradise for myself. Because for many years, I'd been publishing online and working with clients on video calls. And I absolutely love it because it means I can get a lot done without interruption. I spend my mornings writing or making podcasts. And in the afternoon, I get to work with clients all over the world without all the faffing about of traveling into town and hiring offices and so on. And I basically love it. But I realised by the end of 2019, I was getting a little bit of cabin fever. So you might smile at this, but my New Year's resolution for January 2020 was get out of the house more. Well, as the saying goes, man proposes, God disposes. And the irony was not lost on me when I, I read the rules for the first UK lockdown, which were basically stay at home, communicate via email and Zoom, and I thought, this sounds like my normal life. In a weird way, it felt like the world had come round to my way of thinking and working, just at the point where I was personally <laughs> seeing the limitation of it and wanting to break out of it. So normally, for instance, when I look out the window in the morning, our car is one of the few left on the driveway because most people in our street have driven off to work. And I remember looking out the window in March 2020 and everyone else's car was still there. And I knew everyone else was working at home that day, just like me. And it did feel a bit strange. So in those first few days and weeks, there was a feeling of deep disorientation. I remember getting on Zoom with friends and colleagues and we were talking it through and asking, what the hell is going on? It was like this big wave had come along and lifted us out of our normal lives and left us all high and dry. And I remember one thought in particular was pretty humbling for a coach because 
coaching obviously involves setting goals and achieving them. And I remember there were several weeks where I realised I couldn't think in terms of goals. I couldn't think in terms of planning. I couldn't think in terms of the future at all. It was as if the little screen in my mind where I would normally picture my future plans, that screen had vanished. So whenever I tried to imagine a future goal, it was as though there was nowhere to put it. You know, it wouldn't stick in my mind. It kept sliding off and disappearing. So I was thrown back on my Buddhist training of meditation and mindfulness, of being in the present and doing my best to be okay with not knowing what's coming next. And at the same time, my wife Mammy and I had the challenge of helping our children make sense of the situation. I remember my son asking, Daddy, when you were small, did they close the school like this? And I said, no, nothing like this has ever happened in my lifetime or even in Granny and Grandad's lifetime. It was completely new territory, And we were doing our best to be there and offer some certainty and stability to the children. But we had to be honest and say, actually, we're not entirely sure what's going on. The next thing I thought of after family was my clients. I obviously wanted to be there for them. And I also reached out to former clients and a few of them asked for some sessions to help them orient themselves to what was happening. And I was showing up for these coaching sessions, doing my best to be present and helpful. But at the same time, there was no hiding the fact I didn't know what was going to happen any more than they did. But it turned out that that in itself was helpful, holding the space for people to think things through and make some decisions in the face of all the uncertainty. The next thing I realised was that I had practically finished recording season five of the 21st Century Creative and I was on the verge of releasing it (laughs) and I had 10 hours of podcast programming that didn't mention the pandemic at all. And I thought it would be a bit weird to release that as though nothing were happening. So that was a big task, going back and revising and adding new segments to address what was happening. Obviously, I couldn't change the interviews. I think maybe there were one or two interviews that were recorded at the end and mentioned COVID a a little bit. But mostly it was the opening segments where I shared some of the tools and perspectives I was using with clients at the time to help you start to come to terms with the new reality. And it was actually really good for me to have a big task like this, something useful to do while the world was in meltdown. In terms of my coaching business, well, actually, at this point, it had just become our coaching business. Because a few months earlier, Mammy had decided that she wanted to be a coach. So we were starting 2020 with a new business entity, the 21st Century Creative Limited. And Mammy was not only my wife, but also my new business partner. So just as we were embarking on that big new adventure together... Along came COVID, and we started to wonder if this was going to be a massive spoke in our wheel. Because when the virus first landed, a few people who were about to become clients decided, understandably, to cancel their coaching programs. And for the next few weeks, maybe a couple of months or so, 
I hardly received any new coaching inquiries, which was very unusual. So, obviously, that was a concern. And it was all over the news that the government was going to be handing out financial support to businesses. And we wondered if we would be in the position of having to ask for help. But then the coaching inquiries picked up again and the demand for coaching has been continuous throughout the last two years. I've actually been slightly busier than usual. And looking back, my impression is that once people got over the initial shock, some of them kind of shrugged their shoulders and thought, OK, but I still want to achieve my goals. And so they got in touch and I helped them with that. In terms of my existing coaching clients, they basically fell into two categories. One group were relatively undisrupted. They could carry on doing their work, but they obviously had to deal with the stress of the pandemic. But then there was another category of clients who had been severely disrupted. So these were stage performers or working in media where productions had been disrupted or they had training or consulting businesses of some kind where they would normally be working with people face-to-face. And so I had to help these people make some pretty sharp pivots. And I was so impressed by the way they showed up when they made the changes that they needed to. They were under a lot more pressure than I was, and I was very glad that I could be there for them and help them through that process. On the plus side... With Mammy starting to see her own clients, it meant there was a new income stream, which was very welcome. So, within a few months of that initial disruption back in 2020, we realised that our business was not just surviving, but actually thriving in the midst of the pandemic. And we felt very lucky and very grateful that that was the case, that we could continue working and that financial stress, at least, was one thing we didn't have to deal with. It felt a little bit like that old Buster Keaton movie where he's standing in front of a building and it collapses on top of him. But he's standing just where the window lands. So the building has collapsed around him, but he's standing there perfectly okay. And he shrugs his shoulders, dusts himself off, and goes about his day. Having said that, I do remember very distinctly finishing work for the Christmas holidays in 2020 and just sleeping and sleeping. The first few mornings, I could hardly get out of bed. I felt incredibly tired, and I realised I'd been holding on to a lot of background stress. And I had the thought, I remember this feeling, but I can't quite put my finger on it. And then I realised I'd been dealing with stressed people every day. And I said to myself, oh yeah, I used to be a psychotherapist. I dealt with stressed people all the time then. So when I stopped for that Christmas, I could feel all that stress coming out. And I really, really needed that holiday. So in terms of our work, Mammy and I were very lucky. Another way we were lucky was that our children were old enough to be relatively independent in terms of homeschooling during lockdown. They started secondary school, and I have to say that they were incredibly mature and grown up during the various lockdowns and homeschooling and starting a new school in the middle of it all. 
we were also lucky that we were living in a rich country here in the UK that was able to afford vaccines and distribute them very early on. So, first of all, my parents could get vaccinated, which was a huge weight off my mind. And then we got vaccinated and gradually things opened up a bit and there was a whole layer of stress removed. You know, it was a completely different ball game when we knew we probably wouldn't get severely ill, even if we caught COVID. So it didn't feel like we were dicing with death by popping out to the shops. Obviously, the social restriction got to us, not being able to see friends and family for months on end. My brother and his family had lived just down the road, but we couldn't see them for several months. And my parents were too far away to visit without staying overnight. So it was well over a year before we got to see them. And one thing I will give myself credit for is I realised I was giving a lot. I was putting a lot of energy into supporting my clients and my family. So I gave myself permission to focus on my poetry. Became a kind of refuge amid all the uncertainty. There's a kind of a, a timeless space that I go into when I'm reading or writing poetry or recording or performing it. So I kept working on my poetry collection and sending poems out to magazines and competitions, and it was encouraging to have quite a few of them accepted for publication. It was also very nice when I was commended in the Ambit Poetry Competition, Ambit magazine being one of the mainstays of the poetry scene here in the UK. And the Ambit competition reading in November 2021 was my first live poetry reading since the plague came to town. And it was so great to be back in front of a live audience, reading a poem and feeling the response live in the room. Another great project I did was a concrete poetry collaboration with the sculptor Sheena Devitt. We collaborated on the creation of a poem sculpted in sandstone that we exhibited at the Lettering Arts Trust in southwest England. Okay, so during that year, 2021, the second year of the pandemic, things got quite a bit better here in the UK. The vaccine rollout made a huge difference. And this was the year I launched my poetry podcast, A Mouthful of Air. I can't really call it a pandemic reinvention project like some of the others on this season because it was something I'd, I'd wanted to do for a long time. But it was definitely a big step forward for me as a poet. So all the way back in 2017, when I first launched the 21st Century Creative podcast, I knew that I also wanted a poetry podcast. I had the vision that the two podcasts would work together. The 21st Century Creative would give the wide-angle view of creativity across all the different creative disciplines and art forms and creative industries. And then the Poetry Podcast would get very specific and focused about one art form, my own art form. And that would open up a different window onto the creative process. And in 2021, I decided I was going to finally launch it. And you'll shortly hear the story of how I did that and 
the various challenges that I had along the way when Joanna Penn interviews me later this episode. So I won't say much about it now, except it was a lot of work and, and required me to solve several new kinds of problem, but it has been totally worth it. And I was very encouraged recently to see that Podcast Review chose A Mouthful of Air as one of the nine best podcasts for poetry lovers. Podcast Review is one of the biggest review sites for podcasts, published by the Los Angeles Review of Books. And they gave the podcast a really terrific review, which you can read at podcastreview.org in an article titled The Nine Best Podcasts for Poetry Lovers. Okay, turning back to this podcast, The 21st Century Creative, it was in late spring 2021 that I got the idea of the creative disruption season, of interviewing creatives who had been disrupted by the pandemic and done something creative in response. And I reached out at that time to people in the 21st Century Creative Patreon group and on the mailing list and also to my networks, and I started putting together the lineup of guests for the season. And then shortly after that, I got the exciting and somewhat unexpected email from Arts Council England that they were going to fund my new poetry podcast. And I realised it was impossible to produce both shows at once. So I took the decision to put season six on hold while I launched A Mouthful of Air and it ended up taking the rest of the year before I had properly finished that. So I wasn't able to start recording season six until January 2022. Now, obviously, there's been a big downside in being away from the 21st century creative and being away from you for such a long time. Hopefully, this is the longest gap we ever have. But if there is a silver lining, then it was the fact that when I finally got to record season six, it felt that we were, hopefully, fingers crossed, far enough through the pandemic that we could look back and get some kind of perspective on it. And, you know, we could start to trace some patterns and, and see what learnings had emerged that we can take forward into the future. And I don't think that would have been the case if I'd started recording in 2021. You know, looking back, we were still very much in the eye of the storm last year. And so I realised for the concept of creative disruption to be meaningful, I'd have to focus on the art forms and the creative industries that had been most disrupted. And then once I got into the process of recording... I also decided I wanted to get a global perspective by talking to creatives around the world, including places that had a very different experience of the pandemic to the UK, where I live. Now, having such an ambitious vision for the season was great, and it meant it took a lot longer than usual to record the season, because I had to find the right kind of guests and I had a very specific profile of the kind of person I was looking for. And it took a while to get the right mix of different creative fields and locations and type of story. But I do think it's been worth it. I'm really proud of this season. And hopefully it will be a small contribution to salvaging some insight from what we've all been through together. 
So that brings me up to today in summer 2022, when we have plenty of other challenges to deal with. But looking back, what have I learned from my own journey through the pandemic? Well, first of all, I want to acknowledge again the luck factor in terms of the kind of work I do and where I live and the stage of life that we're at with the children, all of which meant I was less disrupted than many people were. Turning to the factors that I had some influence over, I think the biggest thing that I am grateful to my younger self for is all the time I spent doing various forms of personal development. I've done a lot of therapy, a lot of coaching and training. I've been on meditation retreats. I've had a daily meditation practice for many years. I've also used flotation tanks from time to time as a kind of boosted meditation. More recently, I have been practicing Tai Chi and I do kettlebell training every day. And I also spent almost 20 years practicing as a psychotherapist, helping other people deal with various forms of stress and mental health issues, as well as my 25 years experience as a coach. All of which meant at the start of lockdown, I already had a baseline of habits and practices to take care of my mental and physical health. So I was probably as prepared as I could have been for the mental stress of the pandemic. And I think there's no way I would have been in the position to have such a resilient business by helping my clients as well as my family through this period if I hadn't spent so much time learning how to deal with stress and uncertainty. So I will say well done to my younger self. You screwed up plenty of times, but I'm going to give you some credit and say thank you for that. Okay, turning to my work. If you recall, last week in episode 9, I was looking at the factors that made it easier for some creatives to reinvent themselves or make radical changes in the face of the pandemic. And one factor I noticed was that people who were already thinking ahead of the curve, who even before the pandemic had been leaning into the future and looking to do something new and innovative and maybe had been a bit frustrated that they couldn't make it happen, these were the ones who found it easiest to pivot and to do something new. Now, I didn't really need to pivot, but when so many other people had to suddenly adjust their working habits, it turned out that I was already ahead of the curve in terms of my working habits and my business model because I'd spent years trying to find the most efficient way of working that would allow me to have time for writing, as well as giving me access to the kind of clients I wanted, and also to the kind of lifestyle that I found meaningful. And that was certainly not commuting every day and trying to work in the middle of all the interruptions and politics of an office environment. So, as I said, I had been working online from home for many years, and in a weird way, it felt like the world had come round to my way of doing things when I looked out of that window and I saw the neighbours' cars parked outside their houses. Another way I am grateful to my younger self is for the way I had focused for years on creating assets for my business. 
This has been a big theme of this podcast. Right back in season one, I said, forget the career ladder, start creating assets. So an asset is something that will generate ongoing value, either financial or otherwise, in your career. It could be your back catalogue of work. It could be the intellectual property in that work. It could be your brand or your reputation as embodied in an audience via a website or a mailing list or just your network. And having these various business assets was one of the things that really insulated me from some of the worst economic effects of the pandemic. So I'm talking about things like my blogs, my websites, my mailing list, my books, and of course, this podcast. And looking back, it was really all of these assets, as well as word of mouth, that was responsible for that pipeline of new coaching inquiries that kept my coaching practice going and meant that we had a thriving business, even in the midst of all the chaos. On the personal and artistic side, the whole experience of the pandemic has really brought home to me the importance of filling your own well, of staying connected to the source of your creativity, which in my case is poetry. Poetry was never going to stop the virus, but it sustained me. It kept me plugged in to a source of creative energy, and that helped me to show up and help my family and my clients every day. And I now have a book of poems and a poetry podcast that I'm really proud of. Last and certainly not least, one thing that the pandemic has given me that will be with me to the end of my days is appreciating connection with other human beings. As a confirmed introvert, lockdown was easier for me, I think, than for extroverts. But even so, the separation really got to me. I remember so distinctly one day when the lockdown restrictions were loosened so that we were allowed to meet one person from another household as long as we were outdoors. So I met my brother and we went for a walk in the rain and we each had a can of beer walking through the countryside in the pouring rain. <laughs> and it was just glorious. It was so good to see him and it felt like a ray of hope. And when the regulations opened up further, Mammy and I did something we'd been meaning to get round to before the pandemic and we joined a members club here in Bristol. It's called The Square Club, and it's for people who work in the creative industries and the arts, and it's a really lovely place to go and meet other creatives. And when we joined the club, the membership manager told us that, unsurprisingly, they'd had a surge of new members after lockdown, because people are looking for community and really appreciating it after so much separation. So, those are the five key lessons that the pandemic brought home for me. Number one, keep working on your personal development. Number two, keep leaning into the future and learning new things. Number three, keep creating assets. Number four, stay connected to the source of your creativity. And last but not least, stay connected to your tribe – Meet new people and nurture your relationships with the people you already know. 
So that was my pandemic and what I've learned from it. I hope I never experience another one and that once is more than enough for me to get those lessons. And I hope that something here chimes with your own experience in a helpful way. Okay, next up is the first ever interview with me on this podcast. If you're enjoying the 21st Century Creative, you may like to know there is more to this podcast than meets the ear. To help you succeed in your creative career or business, I've created an in-depth program, the 21st Century Creative Foundation Course. It covers the personal and professional skills you'll need to succeed as a creative professional in the 21st century. In other words, the stuff they probably didn't teach you at art school, on your creative writing masters, or wherever else you learned your craft. Things like how to manage your time, how to communicate your ideas, how to handle difficult conversations, how to close a sale, how to deal with money how to grow your network, and how to attract an audience for your work. Altogether, there are 26 lessons in the course, full of practical advice, plus a worksheet for each one to help you put the ideas into practice. And I'm giving you the entire course for free. In case you can't quite believe your ears, go to 21stCenturyCreative.fm slash free course and see for yourself. When you get there, you can sign up with just an email address and you'll get your first lesson right away. By the way, the course has already been taken by over 11,000 students. And on the sign-up page, you'll see lots of testimonials from other creatives whose lives and careers have been changed by the course. You can join them right now for free by going to 21stCenturyCreative.fm slash free course. So this is the point where I normally introduce my interview guest and give you a little background about who they are and what's coming up in the interview. But today's a bit unusual because I'm the one in the hot seat, being interviewed by Joanna Penn about the creation of my new poetry podcast, A Mouthful of Air. And after six seasons of the 21st Century Creative, it's quite possible you already have a pretty good idea of who I am. But on this show, I'm mostly talking in my role as a coach for creatives, so you may not be as familiar with my poetry. It's also possible that this is the very first episode of the 21st Century Creative you've listened to, in which case an introduction is definitely in order. So, my name is Mark McGuinness, and I'm a poet from the West Country of England, which Anglo-Saxon historians and Thomas Hardy fans know as Wessex. I currently live in Bristol, which is actually the big city compared to where I grew up, in rural Devon. My mother is from Devon, and my dad is Scottish, and his family goes back to Ireland, so there's a mixture of Saxon and Celt in my ancestry and my cultural inheritance. So, I've been writing poetry on and off for most of my adult life, 
Back in season two, you met my long-term mentor, Mimi Calvati, who has been an invaluable guide along the way. Now, you may be aware that I self-publish my books for creatives because I like having creative control. But I'm taking a different route when it comes to publishing my poetry. You see, the poetry world is still pretty traditional in terms of publishing options. It's pretty well taken for granted that you will have a publisher rather than doing it yourself. And the usual route to publishing a book is to establish a track record by publishing poems in magazines and winning the odd competition prize, which I've been doing for a while now. But I also want to have a more direct relationship with my readers and listeners. And when I first saw the power of podcasting as a spoken word medium, I knew I wanted to make a poetry podcast. And this interview is about how I managed to make that dream come true. Joe asks me about the genesis of the show, the intentions behind it, and the new kinds of problem that I had to solve to make it happen. To introduce my interviewer, Joanna Penn is an award-nominated New York Times and USA Today best-selling author. She writes thrillers and also books on the writer's life and the business of being a writer. And altogether, she has sold over half a million books in 162 countries and five languages. She's also a friend of mine and a friend of the 21st Century Creative. She's been a guest on the podcast several times, talking about mindset and health and productivity and audio for creatives. She has a very popular and inspiring podcast of her own, The Creative Pen, which is all about writing and self-publishing and book marketing and creative business. It's my go-to podcast to learn about book publishing and marketing, and that's true of many, many writers around the world. So do check out The Creative Pen podcast, and that's pen with a double N. So, as you might expect, as an experienced podcaster, Joe is a great interviewer, and she did a great job of getting the story out of me in this interview. She is my friend, but she didn't let me off lightly. She does challenge me in the interview as well. So, here we go for the final interview of the Creative Disruption season. Mark McGuinness, interviewed by Joanna Penn. Mark McGuinness is an award-winning poet, non-fiction author, and creative coach. He's also the host of two podcasts, The 21st Century Creative and his new poetry show, A Mouthful of Air. Today we're focusing on your poetry, which is exciting. But I wanted to start by asking around the integration, I guess. You've been running this successful creative business for many years. So what part does poetry play in your life in terms of creativity? And does it play any part in the business side? Well, for me personally, poetry is, is the bedrock. You know, it's the foundation of who I am and everything that I do. Um, in terms of writing, it's the most fulfilling kind of writing that I read. 
and also to write. I mean, there's nothing else that comes close, really. Um, so all my, my writing about creativity, my work as a coach, they're really side effects of the poetry, and that's not to diminish them, because I do love, I absolutely love doing them, and I love the fact that I get to do lots of different things, a bit like you. But really, poetry is at the centre of my universe. You know, if there was no poetry, there wouldn't really be much point to the rest of it. So they, they really go hand in hand in that way. Um, creatively, though, I think of poetry as completely separate from everything else I do. You know, I love the fact that it's a different world and I can do what the hell I like there. I mean, there's no commercial considerations. You know, there, there's no money at stake. I don't think that's any great secret about the poetry world. So I have a lot more freedom than a writer who's who's has to keep an eye on the market, you know, that their business is maybe based on a, a selling a certain volume. Or, you know, something like a movie studio where there's a committee making decisions in a very risk-averse basis. You know, with poetry, I can I can basically do what I want. I think the only thing I would say about the poetry and the business having a relationship is that it, it does inform the kind of coach that I am. You know, because I'm a poet, I've got a very strong affinity with creatives of all kind. And so that's who I like to work with. That's my tribe. And on the other hand, I, I hear from a lot of my clients who say, well, the fact that I'm a poet was attractive to them when they were looking for a coach. You know, they knew they weren't going to get the usual corporate style coaching or even necessarily mainstream life coaching. I mean, I've never thought of myself in those terms. You know, they like the idea of working with a, a fellow creative because they know we'll have certain values in common. Mm. It's so interesting. You said at the beginning there that your poetry is at the foundation of who I yeah. am, <laughs> which is, let's face it, that's pretty, that's pretty hardcore. And I feel like, I mean, I've read all your nonfiction. You know, I knew you before you knew who I was <laughs> back in the day, like over a decade Gosh. ago, because uh, uh, you were, I think, about five years ahead of me. And I bought one of your courses early on. And so I've read like pretty much all your stuff. And you do share a lot of personal stuff in your non-fiction books, in your blog, in your podcast. And yet you're basically saying that your poetry is the far more personal side, the more fulfilling side. So this, to me, this is, this is really difficult. And I think about writing memoir and something I'm kind of struggling with. Do you think that your poetry is your more vulnerable side that are you more vulnerable to criticism and you've written a book on yeah. criticism I mean how do we find the strength to access tap into these more personal sides of writing and put ourselves out there in this very vulnerable way yeah why do you think I wrote a book on criticism <laughs> yeah <laughs> I don't know I mean it was partly me and partly what I was hearing from clients and, and readers but yeah in terms of vulnerability absolutely and it's not to say that, I mean, I do write some poems with personal subject matter, but I'm not what's called a confessional poet. It's not you're going to get all my dirty secrets. Um, but even when I'm writing something that's ostensibly about another subject, of course, in the world of poetry, everything's metaphorical. So it, it's always personal um, on that level. And I remember when I started doing poetry readings, you know, I'd already come quite a long way out of my introverted shell. I'd forced and trained and cajoled and got myself coached to do a lot of public speaking, for instance, as a psychotherapist and then later on as a coach. And I was really proud of the fact that I'd overcome my fears to the point where I could speak at an international conference. And I even ended up teaching 
presentation skills. I had a whole course around this. And so I remember thinking, well, okay, I've got this, when I was asked to, to start giving poetry readings. And I was actually quite annoyed to discover that there was this, this whole new level of fear <laughs> involved in reading my poems mm. to an audience. It was like there were several more layers stripped off me. And I was really exposed in a, a, on a personal, emotional level in a way that it didn't happen with normal public speaking. So in terms of how we deal with it, well, my way of getting over it was working as usual is, is to find the best teacher or coach that I could find and persuade them to, to let me work with them. So I went up to the Orkney Islands off the north of Scotland and I worked with Kristin Linklater, who was, sadly, she's no longer with us, but she was a legend in acting and voice teaching circles. And she had a specialism in speaking Shakespearean verse and helping actors on the stage to do the, you know, the iambic pentameter with, and the and the big soliloquies and so on with feeling. And so I I said, look, I'm a poet. Can I come on the course? And she said, yes, you're allowed. You can bring your own poetry. And and in total, I spent two weeks up there, two separate occasions. And the first week was was the foundation, and then the second week I got to to do the Shakespeare course. And she really put me through the ringer. I mean, there's a story I tell on A Mouthful of Air about the day that she, she kind of lost patience with me because I, was, I wasn't projecting enough. So we all had to read a sonnet, a Shakespearean sonnet, as part of our training. And she kept saying, Mark, we're over here. You need to reach us. And eventually she said, look, this isn't working. And she opened the door and she said, right, let's all go outside. And we go outside on this hillside, like a small mountain on this island in the middle of the North Sea. And she says, Mark, you are going to the top of the hill and we are going to the bottom of the hill. And you are going to speak your poem in such a way that we hear it and we feel it at the bottom. And of course, I was absolutely terrified. <laughs> but, you know, you didn't, if, if Kristen gave, told you what to do, you did it. And so I kind of staggered about at the top of the hill, feeling completely ridiculous. Um, and in the end, there was a part of me that just thought, oh, fuck it. And I just let go. And this big voice came out and suddenly I was booming it out all the way across the sea and over to the other island. And it was like the way I thought it was a bit like a Shakespearean version of The Sound of Music, I guess. And <laughs> I went down the bottom of the hill after that. And there were one or two people who were actually, there were tears in their eyes. So it had connected. Mm. And after that, I I really don't care as much. You know, I found myself in readings where I realised I'm the loudest poet in the room <laughs> because something Kristen did, it just, just unlocked the voice and, and it wants to come out. That's so interesting. And I, I, that's definitely a good tip for people because I've had plenty of uh, professional speaking training and I can, same as you, you know, speak on big stages and yeah, there's always a little bit of nerves, but it's fine. And yet I still, I still haven't read my fiction work in front of a group. I will always resist mm. that because it's so much more personal. It's so much more scary and it's almost like your that experience helped you break through that but yeah so a tip for people listening don't just go on a 
like a public speaking course yeah. <laughs> you actually need to do something that is with um work that that means something i guess uh so i think that's that's super useful i do want to come back you said you're not a confessional poet some people might if people are not in the poetry community or have only read some poetry or maybe studied some at school what are, what are the sort of different types of of poets out there you know a lot of people might not realize that there's such a, a breadth i guess yeah, it's a broad church, I guess. And some so the confessional poets kind of started in the sixties with people like Robert Lowell and Sylvia Plath, who were basically just putting out there their family history, stuff that wouldn't have normally got talked about, personal history, particularly with them around mental health. And it's it's the they were the beginning of the well. It's all about bearing my soul and letting and and just letting everything out, kind of thing. And so some poets will still do that now, but not you know others others like to take a maybe a more oblique approach. Um, so that's that's one school. You know, another way you might classify a poet is by the style of the writing. So. I um, personally, I write in quite a lot of traditional forms, so I wouldn't call myself this, but some people would label that formalist poetry. It sounds a little bit like, you know, formal dress, though, to me, so it's not, you know, it's, I, I don't think any writer particularly likes to say I'm a this kind of writer, because we all like to think we're unique and special, don't we? But, but you know... <laughs> But you use particular structures. Yeah, I do. I mean, I do all the, you know, the Shakespearean sonnet and the iambic pentameter and um, all the... I love all the old forms, you know, like the medieval ones, the Renaissance ones. It's just they're, they're like magical uh, structures. There's, there's like a almost like an incantatory quality to them. And I think it's, it's a shame that so... We're in danger of losing that as part of the mainstream of poetry. It is, I think, recent years it's coming back. It comes back in in waves, so to speak. But certainly that's that's my default form of writing. Whereas I think a lot of poets, their default these days would be to write in free verse. So it doesn't it doesn't have meter. It doesn't necessarily have rhyme, although it can do. I mean, it wouldn't have a you know more of a, a set structure. But of course, that's it's its own kind of discipline. You know, T.S. Eliot famously said there's, there's not really any, any such thing as free verse because there's always constraints in art. But if anybody's listening and you're not, um, you're not plugged into the contemporary poetry scene, just because you read one type of poem and you think, well, I'm not sure I like that, there's, there's an awful lot to choose from, you know, just like fiction. So, um, so don't, let, don't let any one experience put you off. Yes, I think that's really important. And of course, those those forms, like I've written a, a pantoum mm -hmm. and, uh, you know, other, other forms like this, and, and the boundaries can actually help us be more creative. I, some people might have tried a haiku, which, you know, looks simple, but <laughs> it's, no, not. it's not. <laughs> you know, these are very basic, I guess basic is one word for it, but it's you have to think about so many things and you have... Uh, fewer words than you do for a book, so it is a it's a very different art, which is interesting. But let let's talk about the the poetry podcast, a mouthful of air. You've got this successful show, the twenty first century creative, which is 
very tied into your yeah. business side. And uh, I've been on it. You've had some really big name people on. It's a great show. Highly recommend it to people. And I know how, we both know how hard it is to do a podcast. So why launch a poetry podcast? And what is it that the spoken word brings, I guess, for this? Really began very simply with just the urge to share some poems. You know, I was looking at my bookshelves, which if we were doing this on video, you would be able to see there's shelves and shelves of poetry behind me. And I, I started to think, you know, it's a shame if the circle stops with me, if it's just me who reads and enjoys, because I've got so many hours of pleasure and um, sustenance from those. And most people don't read poetry. And I, and I got to thinking, surely it can't be that hard to invite them in and, and take a book down from the shelf and read it and say, look, isn't this great? And show them what I love about those poems. And so that's a lot of, obviously, famous poets of the past. Um, but also, I know quite a few contemporary poets who write the most amazing things. I mean, I used to go to classes at the poetry school in London and the City Lit. And apart from anything I was learning, you know, everyone would, would read a poem and we would critique it. I would just think, it was the most fabulous evening of entertainment. You know, I would be getting a live performance from about six poets one evening, and it would be really, really high quality and really, really varied picking up on what you were saying. So I just thought, you know, that this should be more widely known. It Wouldn't it be great to, to put, put these shows on a... put these poems on a podcast so that other people can enjoy the way I do? And, you know, the more I thought about this... The idea of a poetry podcast, the more I kept going back to the idea that poetry at its roots really is an oral art. I mean, it's older than writing. It, it would be, you know, the tribe around the campfire listening to the voice of the poet or the shaman or the bard or whatever they were called. And they would be telling stories in, in song, in verse, in maybe a mixture of the two. And there would be epic tales, there would be tales about the gods and the and heroes and and the creation of the world and and love and betrayal and so on and that was really how we made sense of our world i mean you know that a lot of the time the the poet would be the memory database of the tribe in terms of history and mythology and religion and and sometimes even stuff like botany and um you know medicine and and, and whatever and you know poetry Modern poetry, you know, we, we don't look to the poet for, for an understanding of life, the universe and everything these days in the way that maybe we did once upon a time. But poetry is still there as a, an oral art. And reading a poem, listening to a poem spoken, you know, one of the other things I've discovered about podcasts, and I know you've, you've seen this too, it's a really privileged medium because People tend to listen to podcasts in the quiet time of their day, in their me time, when they're um, cleaning up, when they're uh, commuting, when they're going for a walk. And it struck me that this is a chance to have the poet's voice in your ear in that quiet time of the day. And it can give you, you know, it's not going to give you the whole cosmology and meaning of the universe, but Robert Frost put it beautifully when he said, a poem can give you a momentary stay against confusion. You know, a moment of clarity, of not quite certainty or reassurance, but maybe of being earthed or connected 
to something that feels true, that feels real and authentic. And I, to me, the, that, that's the potential of a podcast, is really simply to, to have the poet's voice in your ear doing that and helping maybe, maybe helping you make a bit more sense of your world. Hmm. Well, it's interesting. I think now there are, there are a lot of uh, performance poets yes. as well who I think are, you know, and even you could say into the rap yeah, yeah, absolutely. movement, yeah, I amazing guess, and, and song lyrics. Yeah. yeah, I mean, people people do, you know, people know these off by mm. heart in the songs off by heart because they are essentially poetry and a lot of them rhyme. I know not po- not all poetry has to rhyme, but rhyming poetry in yeah. song is a way that it was, the message was carried, yes. wasn't yeah, it, as well? Yeah. And yeah, so, sorry, carry on. Well, I mean, I think of poetry in some ways very much like music. You know, I'm, and I would say to anybody who doesn't feel confident as a poetry reader, Think about it like this. So, for instance, I, I can't read music. I can't play an instrument. I can't sing in tune. But I have strong opinions and tastes in music, you know. And I, I have a brother who is a musician and was a professional musician and, and you know, does, he, he can explain all the, the technical stuff and his knowledge of music is much deeper than I am. But sometimes if we have an, a, a discussion about music, I'll say, yeah, but I just don't like it. I like this instead. And I think I would really encourage you, if you try the podcast, to use it as a way of starting to develop your own taste in poetry. And, it, you know, you, it doesn't need to be an – it's not an academic discipline. They tried to turn it into one, but that's not what it is. And so the way I do this on the podcast is I throw you in at the deep end, but then I also throw you a life jacket. So, so the way, <laughs> well, the way this works is – so you. <laughs> You hear the opening music, but then the next thing after that you will hear is the poet reading a poem. If it's a contempor- if it's a living poet, I get them to come and read it. If it's a dead poet, I'll read it on, on their behalf. But, you know, so often we feel, oh, you need to have it explained to you first and get the cliff's notes and the, you know, the footnotes and whatever. No, you don't. If, if it's a good poem, it doesn't need an introduction, and it should have an effect, even if you don't grasp the whole meaning of it all at once. It, and treat it like music and just think, does it make you feel something? Does it, does it create images in your mind or, or um, emotions? Do, do you feel it in your gut? And so that's, that's throwing you in the deep end. You, ju- you just hear the poem, whatever it is. But then the life jacket I'm going to throw you is you'll get a bit of context about the poem straight after it. So if it's a, a classic poem, then you'll hear me enthusing about the poem and talking about the background and what we know about the poet and also some technical stuff about look what look what they're doing here look how this is made how it works and you will get the technical stuff but again it's not academic I'm going to show you how a poet and the old word for a poet is well in Greek poet means maker so this is really a craft practical how is this put together uh, approach Um, and then if it's a living poet who's on the show, then I will interview them for about 10, 20, 25 minutes about the poem, where it came from. That's usually the question I start with. And then how it evolved in the writing process. So you've got the poem, you've got your initial response to it, your own experience of it, and then you get a bit of perspective or background about it that that maybe helps to shed some light on aspects that weren't immediately apparent. And then at the end of the show... 
this is my favourite bit, we play the same recording of the poem again. And even though it's the same recording of the same poem, people tell me it sounds different the second time round because, of course, they've got that bit of context and there's some things that they're listening out for that they're going to notice because we've highlighted them in the interview or, or the commentary. So, so that's the deep end and life jacket approach to poetry. No, I think that's so interesting. And I love that you're delving deeper into the craft side and your enthusiasm for poetry, I think, is is infectious. So basically, if listeners don't know anything about poetry, they'll get something out of it. And then as with poems, I guess, if they already know things, they're going to get a deeper level of of meaning, I guess, in these poems. That's right. I mean, I'm trying, really, I've got two ideal listeners in mind. One is a poetry geek like me who, who lives and breathes this stuff and wants to you know wants to experience it in a different way and then the other is the person who's you know cultured read you know reads a lot but reads probably anything but poetry and giving them a way into it and you know i guess one of the the other things i try and do with particularly around the questions with the poets is if you ever read a poem and you your first response is what <laughs> or hang on a minute, did I, I don't get it, or did I, does it mean, whatever. I try and ask all of those questions to the poet. So if you've, if you've ever had that response to a poem, then tune in to A Mouthful of Air, and you're going to hear me grilling the poet <laughs> and saying, so come on, what are we supposed to get from this? Or um, am, I, am I being dumb or whatever? So, you know, it's just opening it up and not being so precious about it. Yeah, not being precious about poetry is actually really important, I think. <laughs> we all get so het up, like so serious about all this stuff. I think probably because so many of us did it at school. Yeah, that's You know, it. if I, I did poetry at school and it was very serious and very important. Oh, but that's right. <laughs> I got a lovely email from a reader the other day who said, I used to run screaming from poetry, but now you've opened the door and you've shown me and actually it, it, it can relate to me. And I, I think a nice example of this is I have my longtime teacher and mentor, Mimi Calvati, a really wonderful poet, and she's just published a, a lovely book of Petrarchan sonnets called Afterwardness. And, of course, when you hear the word Petrarchan sonnet, you think, my goodness me, that's going to be elevated and on a pedestal and a bit remote. But the poem that she read is called Eggs. And when I asked from where did you get the um, the inspiration for it? She said, well, I ordered a fried egg in my local cafe and it's about an egg. And she's got this wonderful theory about how eggs are like Petrarchan sonnets. So you'll have to listen to the, the episode to, to kind of untangle that. But hopefully that gives an idea of the, the down-to-earth um, aspect of it, you know, even, even with something as, as revered as such a, an old verse form. Well, the other thing I think is really interesting is intellectual property. I think this is super important to talk about because you mentioned living poets mm. and uh, and dead poets. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so in terms of the intellectual property of, you know, being able to read a poem on uh, in audio format, because this is one of the issues, like a lot of people want to quote poetry in their work yeah, or yeah, song yeah. lyrics, and you can't usually because they're so short, it can't possibly come under fair use. So how are you dealing with the intellectual property side of the show? I am doing my best to be scrupulous about it. So that what that means is 
old poets does mean old poets, you know. So it, it's stuff that's out of copyright. So Shakespeare's not going to sue me for using his sonnet. <laughs> Chaucer's probably not going to get too annoyed if I do a bit of one of his poems. And for the contemporary poets, I'm checking with each poet, you know, who is the licence holder or, you know, who needs to sign off? And often it's the publisher. And we're getting the publisher to, to sign off and say, yes, we're happy. And, and I'm pleased to say the publishers are happy to do that. And because, you know, obviously we're, with each poet, we're showcasing a poem from, typically from their latest book and encouraging listeners to, if, well, if you like this one, then go and buy the book. So um, yes, absolutely. You've got to be super careful. And it's, it's not, it's the same with some song lyrics. It's so easy to think, oh, I just put a couple of lines in my story because, you know, the characters are in a bar and that's the song that's playing and it, it related to them. But no, you can't, you, you really can't do that. Mm, you have to be super careful. That's why I wanted to mention it. Uh, so let's talk about the interesting uh, poetry publishing side, because yes, poems are great when they're performed uh, by voice, yeah. but they're also, a lot of them on in books, I have a lot of poetry books too, they're designed in print to look a certain way on the page. Yeah. So I feel like a lot of people set them out in certain ways. You know, some people um, format things, say, without capital mm -hmm. letters, or they have things running onto different lines that you would have put just in a sentence if it was, if it was prose. So talk about what are the options with publishing? Why is print so important for poetry, I guess? And and what are the options for poets in terms of the different publication routes? Uh, and what are you doing? Well, actually, print isn't necessarily important for all poets. I mean, Homer may or may not have, have written it down himself. Or, he is or dead. Herself. <laughs> um, you know, like I say, it started off as an oral um, medium. And to this day, you've got... Um, as you said, there are performance poets who say the real thing is the, the live experience with the audience. And, you know, the book is like a souvenir to them. And they say, it's not the real thing. You should judge, you know, they say, don't judge me by the book, judge me by the show. Um, so it's a wonderful kind of hybrid. I think of it as an amphibious form, you know, it, it can live in the water or on the land. And you know, talking to the poets sometimes, it's it's you, you can see that the way it's laid out on the page may or may not have a really strong relationship to the way they read it out loud. Um, but in terms of publishing options, it, the poetry world is very conservative, folks. It's, um, you know, maybe think of the fiction world about 10 or 20 years ago. It's very, I mean, there are indie poets, there is an indie poet scene. That's not the route I have taken, and I know this was this has raised eyebrows in a few quarters because I'm I'm all my nonfiction I do publish independently because I like to be in control of it and um, do it my way. But I'm going the traditional route for the actual publication of the poems, but I'm also having my cake and eating it by having a podcast where I get my direct relationship with the audience and. One big reason for going the traditional route is it's a very practical one. And that is that I want to reach the readers who love poetry the most. And right now, as a general rule, those people are far more likely to read poetry that is presented via a publisher. So if I decided to self-publish my poems, which I could do, I know how to do it technically, I would be missing out on that core poetry readership. 
And I don't want to do that. You know, I do want to reach a wider audience as well, but I also want to reach the real enthusiasts. And, you know, we can argue about whether that's that's fair or that's the way the poetry world should be, but I think sometimes as as authors and creators, we need to deal with the world the way it is rather than the way we think it should be. And, you know, for instance, if you're, if you're writing genre fiction and, you know, I don't know, romance or science fiction or thrillers, and you say, well, I don't like ebooks. I, I, to me, a, a real book is, is a print book, so I'm only going to publish in print. You're going to miss out on a lot of the hardcore readers of that genre. So, so that one big reason is just that practical access to, to the readership that I want. Um, another reason is more of an artistic one, which is, you know, one big misconception about poetry is, is we often think it's a solitary art, that it's all about the individual poet channeling their visions and expressing their unique talent. And obviously there is some truth to that, but if you read a lot of poetry, after a while you realise it's more like a massive group writing project that's happening across space and time and even between languages. So if you read any significant poet, you're going to find ideas and allusions and references and poetic forms that have come from other poets, and quite often translations or rewritings or answering back to other poets' work. So to me, writing poetry means being a part of that conversation with other poets, where you're reading each other's work and responding to it and discussing it and so on, as well as the, the ghosts of the past. And right now, if you want to be part of that conversation, then it's much harder to do that as a self-published author. It's, it's very much expected you'll have a publisher and that will be your entry into that world. So, so that's the route I'm going. Those are the main reasons. I mean, there's other things like um, print quality. So the average poetry book is typically 60, 70, 80 pages. And you try getting, was it Kindle print? To, to align the spine properly on a book that that's thin, you know, the title on the spine. Um, and also a lot of the, the poetry publishers really do go to town in terms of print quality and font and paperweight and presentation. So there's that, you know, there, there's the, the experience of reading the book and holding it and being in a way that it's, it's a beautiful object to contemplate. So all of, yeah, all of those kind of combine together that at the moment, um, traditional publishing is is the main game, I'm afraid. Well, I'm still going to challenge you on it because uh, there are plenty of people, for example, who will work with a printer to do a beautiful print object and just, you know, which is the same printer as the poetry publisher might use. And there's lots of ways to reach people in, in different uh, mediums and ways to uh, get a poetry audience to buy that book. But so I want to go back to what you said at the beginning about your poetry being the foundation of who you are. and ask whether it's really about validation and acceptance of peers and the deeper side of being a creator and and a poet. I mean, you've, you're an award-winning poet. Awards, I feel, are part of validation. And I also feel that a publisher that is known for great poetry is validation for your art. So forget all the side of marketing and print quality. Is it really about validation? From the ego's perspective, yes, of course. And we but all that's have... important. Yeah, that's important. Yeah, sure. So we all have an ego and that's part of it. But, you know, 
I, you know, I have gone back and forward and thought about this. And partly is I love the poetry world. I mean, it's easy to think of gatekeepers as being, you know, the big bad enemy, etc. But the poetry world, it's not like there's a lot of money at stake. Nobody is in this for the money. They're all enthusiasts. And I've grown up with this world. I've been grown up reading certain publishers and enjoying their output and the style of work that they put out there. And, and I, I want to be part of that world and play that game. So, I, you know, and the idea of going and printing my own books and being supervising a printer and, and storing all of that, it just doesn't excite me. Mm. Yeah, and, and obviously I'm challenging you and I feel the same way. I feel like you, you're you an indie an indie author for your nonfiction. We have our money-making books and then we have our books that are art and our books of our heart, for example. And I, yeah, I, I want to win an award for my fiction. I want to, I don't know whether I want traditional publishing, but I probably still do. I still think that's part of the validation of, of the industry. Uh, so I think it's important for people listening, you know, separate, separate the business side and the money-making side from the art Sometimes, you know, it doesn't have to be both, does it, all the time? Well, there's always something that you can get attached to. You know, it's easy. Um, you know, if you're writing in a more commercial field, you can get attached to the money. Or a field that has got a wider audience, you could get attached to fame. In poetry, yes, of course, it's very easy to get attached to the whole professional reputation and um, peer uh, you know, review and and how you're seen within that community. But, you know, whatever field that you're in, there's going to be some temptation for the ego. And one thing I say to my clients, because I, I get all kinds of different versions of this from different clients. I get some artist clients who will come in and say, well, I don't know if I want to play the gallery game or and, you know, have my work represented in, in you know, high-end galleries and, and, and introduced to people in a certain way. Or if I'd rather just go direct and sell it, you know, and, and have an online presence. And what I say to clients is, well, play the game you want to play. Because whatever you do, there's going to be an upside and there's going to be a downside. But you've got to, th and it's all, it's all a game. But you've got to think about the game that really appeals to you, that you think, you know what, I would enjoy playing that as well as I think I'd have a reasonable chance of competing. Mm, and you can play a different game for different projects. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that yeah. and we, exactly. And we're so lucky to have the choice now. There used to be only one game, and now there's lots of games. It's just you can't. I don't think you can play the same game with the same book. No, you you can't. And also, even within the same world. So, like I said, I'm having my cake and eating it. So I have. I'm going the traditional route for the the actual publication, but it's such. And that's got its own rewards and frustrations. It moves very slowly, for instance. But then having the podcast as a direct, you know, like I say, a visceral medium where I've got uh, my own platform, my own voice in the world. And weirdly enough, you know, there's a, there's a stigma against self-publishing poetry, but people quite admire the fact that you can make a podcast. So, you know, that, that's a weird kind of loophole in the poetry world. So, which I'm quite happy. But I do think you want to, if you're going to think about this, maybe from a slightly more strategic perspective, just think about if you want to, um, you know, do well at, at whatever game it is you choose, then you just think, well, what are the rules? What are the parameters? And what are the things that maybe not so many people are doing? And, and could that, uh, 
give me a little bit of an edge or a little bit more fulfillment and satisfaction in what I in how I approach it. Absolutely. And of course, both of us use podcasting to both serve our community and also as as a vehicle for our businesses in terms of your 21st century creative and, and this podcast, The Creative Pen. And now we both have podcasts. I have books and travel and you have a mouthful of air, which are more passion projects. And yeah. I mean, the only reason we're doing this is because we know how to podcast, <laughs> but it, it is it does take a lot of work and it costs money to yeah, produce, yeah. especially, I mean, you have very high value mm. production. Uh, I don't, <laughs> I don't spend as much on high value production as you do. But if people are thinking, oh, is, is podcasting really worth it? And what, I mean, you talk there about some of the, um, I guess, some of the recognition you can get in a community does can it pay for itself or it financially or is it worth it for the reputation and the other ways uh, you can get a return well firstly it's absolutely worth it for the pure joy of doing it you know any time that i spend writing or recording this show including you know re- recording my own episodes or interviewing poets it's a delight and the time just disappears and I, I work on it in the mornings typically and it's lunchtime before I know it. And another really core cool motivation is just connecting with listeners. You know, when I get a response like the person who said I used to run screaming from poetry and now you've opened the door. Or, you know, if I talk to a poet and they they have a good experience and they felt that they've been able to put themselves out there into a, into the world. That is you know, absolutely the core of what makes it worth doing. And if if that's not there, if you're only doing it because you think, well, I need to do something to get, build my reputation or or generate income or sales or whatever, then find some another way of doing it. In terms of time and money, yeah, you're right, you're right, Joe. I am a perfectionist about audio particularly. And I always want to have high production values and music and... um you know, I like having the atmospheric soundscapes that Javier Whaler creates for both of my shows. And, you know, it's not cheap to do this. So, again, to, just for anybody listening, you don't necessarily have to be as perfectionistic as this. There are lower budget ways of doing a perfectly good show. But in terms of what I wanted to achieve, so my first show, The 21st Century Creative, pays for itself via coaching clients and i've also recently added a patreon membership but for the new show a mouthful of air it's an art project and i can't really see a lot of commercial potential i don't really have that you know commercial interest in it but i didn't want to compromise on the production quality so i did something i've never done before and that's to apply for public funding from arts council england because i thought you know there is value for other people here this is it's really a public art project. I'm going to be sharing poems and connecting poets with listeners. So if I do it well, there's going to be a benefit to the listeners. There's going to be a benefit to the poets and there's a benefit to their publishers. You know, I really want this to be my contribution to the poetry world. So I made this argument to the Arts Council. I filled out the longest application form I have ever done in my life. And I'm very pleased to say they responded and they gave me the the full amount of the funding. So thank you very much to Arts Council England for stepping up and doing that. And, you know, because sometimes I hear from creatives who say, well, you know, I just like to be funded to make my art. That hasn't been my experience of how the funding world works. You know, 
you've always got to sell your ideas. I had to really think hard and make my case and say, this is how it'll help me develop as an artist, but also this is what's in it for the audience, this is what's in it for the, the public, this is what's in it for the, the poets and their publishers and so on. And, you know, whatever you're doing, if you want to do it at a high level and you get it out into the world, and even if you're giving it away for free like a podcast, you, you've still got to sell it. You've got to sell the idea to advertisers or patrons or clients or sponsors or a funding body and then and then you've got to go out there and sell it to people who have got the listeners who've got an infinite choice of other podcasts that they could be listening to mm. and I actually really love that you've done that because again in the same way that you talked about the different kinds kinds of publishing it's not either or and it's the same you have a coaching business you have um you you sell uh, you're an indie you sell uh, online courses and and you have done anyway in the past and now you're applying for a grant I think it's the same it's like you don't have to just do one thing it doesn't have to be all grants or all indie or all coaching and I that's I think that's what I want to encourage people is to think wider than just the one thing and I mean obviously we're both full-time creative entrepreneurs <laughs> so we, we can branch into these other things and and I guess that I've been thinking about this a lot actually as we speak today I've just put out my 10-year anniversary post this will it will be in the past when this goes out but this idea that after a number of years, your confidence perhaps grows and your income is steady enough in other areas that you can actually branch out into things that you might have been putting off because you couldn't afford it in other ways. And now you can. And now's the right time to branch into these more passion projects. Yeah, definitely. I mean, looking back, it was years ago, I had the idea for the two shows. I wanted to do a poetry show and I wanted to do a coaching show. And I started with a coaching one partly because you know, I was reasonably confident it would make money and therefore it would pay for itself and all the equipment I was buying, uh, not to mention the, you know, the training and, and whatever. But also because, you know, creatively, the poetry show is more complicated and more demanding emotionally and, and so on. There's more people involved. There's more moving parts. And so I'm really glad I did the coaching show first because although it's longer, in terms of production, it's simpler to do. Um, so I think, yeah, you're right that that you you got to, again you got to think a bit strategically about well if I do this first that will get me to there and then when I get to there then I I will have more options you know creatively hopefully financially and and business wise. Mm, brilliant. So we're out of time. So where can people find you and the podcasts and everything you do online? Well, starting with The Poetry Show, which is my new baby, so I want to introduce it to everybody. It is a mouthful of air on Apple Podcasts and Spotify and all the usual podcasting platforms. The website is a mouthfulofair.fm. Um, and if you go to the website, you can sign up for an email subscription, even, even if you listen to the audio podcast via an app, and you will get a transcript of every single episode, including the text of the poem. So if you want to read the poem as well as listen to it, go to a mouthfulofair.fm and sign up for the email version and you can, you can experience the amphibious nature of poetry. And then on social media, we are a mouthful of air on Twitter and Facebook and on Instagram. I'm in, now an Instapoet. Uh, the poems are going up at airpoets on Instagram. And then if you're interested in the other 
podcast, The 21st Century Creative. That is 21st Century Creative on all usual places. And my coaching site is lateralaction.com. Brilliant. Well, thanks so much for your time, Mark. That was great. Thank you, Joe. I, I really enjoyed this. You took me to some unusual places for a podcast interview. So thanks. You have been listening to the 21st Century Creative, hosted by Mark McGuinness. You can find the notes for today's episode with more about my guest, as well as all the backlist episodes at 21stCenturyCreative.fm. If you enjoyed the show, then I hope you will subscribe in Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen, and take a few seconds to swipe and leave a rating for the show. If you would like to take the 21st Century Creative Foundation course to help you carve out an original creative career, you can sign up and get the whole course for free at 21stCenturyCreative.fm slash free course. And if you are an experienced creative and you're curious about getting my help as a private coaching client, then the first step is to go to 21stCenturyCreative.fm slash coaching questions and answer the questions on that page. Thank you for listening. I hope you'll join me again soon.